there. 7300 doctoral social work class. How are you all doing today? That's nice. That's good. How am I doing? Oh, it's so nice of you to ask. Um, let me tell you how I'm doing. Right now, you can probably hear some ambient outside type noise. Wonder why? I'll tell you why. It's because I'm outside. I'm recording this lecture outside. And not only am I recording this lecture outside, I'm recording this lecture outside while I'm on a walk with my 13-month-old son. You want to say hi to him? Say hi, Walden. He's not talkative. It's not going to happen. He's just got uh, this pacifier thing uh, in his mouth. He's, and he's grooving on that. So he's not going to say anything right now. Sorry about that. He's shy, I guess. Anyways, I'm uh, on a walk with my son. Now, you might be wondering, why, why is he doing that? Why is he recording a lecture? <laughs> he's out on a walk with his son. Here's the deal. You know, we had our class on Saturday. It's now Sunday. And I want to do the recap lecture before too much time goes by. Well, everything's still fresh in my mind. Um, but to do that, you know, I, I, I got to do it on Sunday. And right now, Walden, that's my son, his mom is in the house. And she's uh, involved in a home improvement project that requires that she paint things. And uh, Walden, at 13 months old, is is walking. Like, he he's a full-on walker. He doesn't do, like... Every, I mean, once in a great while now, he will crawl, but mostly he's a walker. And since he's up on two feet, it means his hands are free to mess with stuff. And she's painting. You can see where this is going, right? You can see how this could be a disaster. Yeah. So, because of all of that, I am on Walden duty, and I'm walking around with him right now, because if I don't walk around with him, he'll freak out. So that's what we're doing. All right. So now that you know my, my status, and I feel like you can understand the weird ambient outside noise and me talking and being slightly out of breath because uh, walking and talking like this is actually more strenuous than I thought it would be. But anyways, yeah, that's, what, that's what's going on. Let's play a little bit of introduction music and then let's come back and do our recap. So let's start a recap with the concept of ghosts and the way that this concept figures into benevolent explanations. You ready for that? Great. So the, we talked about benevolent explanations and, and the idea here is a lot of times when 
a couple comes to see you, they're not going to be knocking on your door saying like, hey, we would like to schedule a session here because we are just doing so great. We thought it'd be fun to tell somebody about it. They come in and they knock on your door because they're frustrated at each other, or at least one of them is frustrated at the other one. They knock on your door because somebody has done something, said something, behaved in a way that has potentially, probably, put the relationship, you know, kind of on thin ice or, you know, it, it, it's hitting the rocks. It's not doing great. That, that's, that's when people come to see you. And a lot of times when they come to see you, since they're, they're already kind of upset and angry, a little bit worked up, they are uh, thinking that their partner has a lot of problems and so on and so forth. And their partner sometimes tries to explain sort of like some of the reasons they think what they think, some of the reasons they do what they do, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in my experience, it's not uncommon that these conversations very quickly trend toward people talking about their past. And when people talk about their past, one of the things that comes up is uh, they're ghosts. Everybody has ghosts. Everybody's being haunted all the time. Like I said in the class, if you, you know, you're, you're in a long-term committed relationship with somebody, you're married to them, whatever, you're not only connected to them, you're not only in a relationship with them, you're not only married to them, you're connected in a relationship with married to them and all of the ghosts that they're dragging around with them. And, you know, they're, they're connected to in a relationship when married to all the ghosts that you're, how do you hear my voice go? Like, I just sound like a teenage boy there. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, uh, you get the point. When you're in a relationship with people, you're in a relationship with them and all the ghosts. That's how it works. So why is this important? Well, it, it gives you as a therapist, potentially like a concept, a tool that you can use to think about what's going on here. When you're talking to your couple, when your couple is talking to you, when you're listening to the Esther Perel podcast and she's talking with couples, one of the things that you can listen for, there's so many things, but one of the things you can listen for is what are the ghosts that are making their like, you know, kind of like ghostly haunting noises in this relationship and it might sound kind of kind of crazy or or might even sound kind of dumb but if you think of it that way if you actively think to yourself hey i'm not just talking to this this couple i'm not just talking to this these two people or if you're doing a, a session with just one half of the couple i'm not just talking to this one person i'm talking to these people or this person and they're ghosts and that means you can kind of try to listen for what those ghosts are Try it sometime. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you'll you'll be surprised by the results or not, but I think that you might be. It's it's an interesting thought experiment to try to listen to, the, to listen for the ghostly noises that someone makes. Now, the thing about these ghostly noises is that they're they, there's really no way to explain to you here and now what they will sound like, or I, I guess I can't prepare you. Um, in any meaningful way, I don't think, like what to listen for. Because everybody's so different. Everybody's ghosts are kind of different. But um, when you listen to somebody, what I think you, you might do, and this, this kind of harkens back to a previous comment I made, not this week, but last week, about the subject of the enunciation and the subject of the statement. You know, when, when people are talking, you'll hear their statements. You'll hear the subject of the statement. They'll say that. They're ghosts are going to be kind of within the subject of the enunciation. 
And so the point that I'm trying to make now is I walk around with a microphone looking like a total weirdo. Let me tell you, people are giving me looks as I do this. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that one of the ways that you might get better at listening for the subject of the enunciation is to think of it as the different sorts of spooky noises that a person's ghost makes, or ghosts, plural, ghosts make as they haunt them. Let's play some spooky music. How many of you have ever seen a movie, um, have you, have you seen The Exorcist or a movie like The Exorcist? Hand, show of hands. Oh, some of you have your hands up. Look at that. Well, I've, uh, I've seen The Exorcist and, uh, for those of you who haven't, here's kind of what happens. There's this little girl and her body gets possessed by this evil spirit and the hero of the film has to try to get the evil spirit out of her. So why am I talking about The Exorcist? Well, one of the other things we talked a lot about in our class this last week is the forms of interventions that we can use. We talk about interventions that are kind of like uh, suturing interventions. And we also talked about interventions that are cutting interventions. So what I want to do here is uh, try something. I want to try to suggest that uh, when a ghost is kind of like deeply embedded in somebody, that when it's way in their body, you know, it's, 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 it's in there, it's laid down some roots, one of the things that you might try to do is kind of like cut it out, cut out the uh, the ghost that's taken root in a relationship, in a couple, in an individual. The way you do that was with cutting interventions. Cutting interventions might, um, well, here, let me say this before I get into the, what the intervention does. The thing about a thing about ghosts is, even though people are being haunted by them, they don't necessarily want to give the ghosts up. I think that a lot of times people think that their ghosts are things that they need, that without their ghosts, they wouldn't be safe. So if, here's an, an example. Uh, I've worked with people who have a ghost that is telling them that they can't trust anybody, that if they trust somebody, as soon as they do trust this person, that's when that person will leave them. That's when that person will be like, you know what? Now that you trust me, I'm out, right? And so this person can be haunted by all of their previous, you know, abandonments and rejections. And that might be making it difficult for them to trust their partner, right? Because they got this ghost whispering all this stuff about how they can't trust people. That person who's going through that, who's being haunted in that way, they might think like, I need this ghost. This ghost is my buddy. You know, I, I kind of don't like what it has to say, but um, you know, without it, I might let my guard down. And if I let my guard down, bad things would happen. I'd get abandoned again. I don't want that, right? So. That's just one example that I, I just thought of uh, about a ghost that somebody might have. So now when, when that person, that couple comes in and you kind of sense that whoever has that ghost has and, and you hear it and you start to kind of like recognize it in the subject of the enunciations, you start to hear it's ghostly haunting thingies. What you might do then is make a cut intervention and the cutting intervention is an attempt to kind of like cut into the the ghost's hold on the person who it's haunting. And there's a lot of different ways you might do that, but those cutting statements are, are effectively going to be statements that you make, verbal interventions, 
that suggests that something that this person believes is uh, wrong. And when people are are told that something they believe is wrong, it doesn't always go so great. They don't always like that. So you got to be careful with how you cut, right? You can't just be like, yo, you're wrong. <laughs> that would be a disaster. You, you know, you got to find a way to make the cut very precisely um, and uh, in a way that will actually allow for the person who you cut into to experience the cut, but then not have them like, you know, rush out of the room bleeding and all over the place. Now, of course, this is a verbal thing. You're not literally bleeding, but uh, they're psychically bleeding. Something like that, right? That's what you're trying to kind of go in for. Yellow-grade depression It's because you care about things And you don't want to do your work Yellow-grade depression It's because you get hurt Because you have a human heart And you don't want to do your work So what, what might be an example of a cut? Um, so in a statement, if I, I came across somebody and they were going through something like that, I, I think, as I make this up off the top of my head, that the way I might try to cut into what they were going through, what they were experiencing, what they were describing, is to say something like, um, the only thing that, that exceeds humans' capacity for betrayal is their capacity to trust, and then I wouldn't say anything else. Why would I say it like that? Well, I think that if I say something kind of like weird and cryptic like that, one, I'm not uh, saying to the person like, hey, this thing that you believe is, is dumb, wrong, stupid, foolish, whatever, right? It's not a diss. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going after them. But what I'm doing is I'm saying something that make them curious. And they, they would hear that, I hope, and they'd go like, wait a minute, what? What did he just say? What, what did you just say? Huh? And at that point, they might, their, their, their curiosity is peaked. When their curiosity is peaked, what that does is it allows for me to speak to them in a way where they will be less defensive uh, than they would be if their curiosity was relaxed was, or wasn't working at all. So here's an example, right? Like when, not an example, here's another way to explain it. When people are not curious, when they're sure that they know something, when they, they're, they're positive that they understand, know, get something, they're not curious. And they just kind of keep on doing things. So in the example I gave, the person might you know, believe that they know that if they trust, then they'll be abandoned. So if they know that, they're not going to, um, they're going to be defensive to any suggestion to the contrary. The only way to get around that defensiveness, I think, the only way to cut through it is by making a certain kind of verbal intervention, which is a little bit weird. And that, that little bit weird intervention might help you sort of um, get around, get through those defenses. It cuts into them. That's kind of what I'm getting at. So when you say something like the only thing that it exceeds human's capacity for betrayal is their capacity to trust, that might result in the couple going like, or like, I, 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 I'm sorry, what? I, I don't understand. And when you get them in that mode, the defenses, whoop, they go down. And that's really helpful. So uh, anyways, <laughs> I have no idea 
if this is making any sense outside of my brain. But I, I really do hope that it is. Now this brings me to, to like suturing, right? And I, so after you've cut and you kind of kind of cut away a ghost in some way, um, there's gonna be times where you, you uh, there's some dogs around here, you hear them barking? There'll be some times after that where you might wanna suture up, you know, the, the cut that you made. And there may be other times where you can't suture it up where you kind of like need to leave it open for a little bit. Looking like, I don't know, leave it open and, and uh, sometimes they do this in surgeries, right? Like I actually had a friend a while back who had to have the surgery where they had to um, kind of like cut into his body and then like leave the the thing open and, and they, they packed it and then later on they had to go back in and, and they kind of had to do this like surgery in parts basically. And since they want to do, they have to do it in parts, they can't do it all at once. They, cause uh, you know, the body can't, <laughs> You can't, can't surgery is a, a hard thing, right? Like you can't just put a body through like days and days of surgery. That that's not going to work. Body needs to take a break. The doctors need to take a break. So in my buddy's case, um, he needed to go through a surgery, and they needed to do part of the surgery. They needed to stop, let some time go by, and they needed to go back in and do like the second part of the surgery. And it would be stupid to like do the first part, stitch him up, you know, let him heal completely, and then cut into him again. They had, to, they had to leave it open. So the this is a weird metaphor. But there's times where you have to do like the equivalent of that in your therapeutic work. But you don't always need to do it that way. Sometimes it's going to be a good idea to suture something closed because um, you don't want the wound to continue to be open. That's just like another kind of like metaphorical way to think about cutting and suturing, which I hope is uh, useful to y'all. So here we are, last uh, last point of my, my recap here. We also talked about, and this got talked about in class a little bit, but it got talked about in my replies to many of your Moodle posts more frequently. Many of you talked about like the, uh, the idea of describing the truth as I see it to, to a, a patient, which oftentimes takes the form of a cut. Um, that you, you thought that, that that seemed a little bit rough maybe, or... Um, insensitive perhaps and many of you ask like what happens when the patient like totally disagrees with the truth as you see it um and i i don't know if this is where you were going but when i was reading your your comments i was hoping that none of you are thinking that like i find myself like in frequent sorts of like battles with the patients that i work with because i i kind of i mean sometimes i do sure but i wouldn't say that that's like a extremely common kind of thing and part of the reason for that is when I describe the truth as I see it, um, it's not it's not easy all the time, right? It's kind of like 
sometimes the truth is I see it as weird. Like when I say something like uh, the only thing that exceeds the person's capacity for betrayal is their capacity for trust. That's the truth as I see it. I think that's true, right? So it's one example. Other times I might uh, tell them the truth, but I might start by saying something like, may I have your, your permission to make an observation? And if they say, sure, I'll say like, no, you said that a little bit too quick. I really want you to think about it. And the reason I'm asking you is that um, this observation is an observation that I suspect you might not enjoy hearing too much. I will actually say that to people. <laughs> and uh, when I preface it that way, sometimes that, that's a, they'll be like, oh, sure. Uh, okay. It almost makes them more curious in, in a weird way, right? So I'll do things like that. But then when I do describe the truth as I see it, I try to do so in a way which I believe is an example of ethical speech. What Lacan anyways would call ethical speech. Ethical speech is speech which um, is sometimes weird, sometimes hard to hear, but it's a, it's a type of speech which is delivered in an ethical way. An ethical way is you're delivering it with the intention not to do, not to cause pain, not to be a bully, not to be mean, not to hurt somebody. You recognize that that may be what happens, that you might end up causing pain, but it's not as if you want to. This is kind of what I was saying. The surgeon, I don't think, enjoys causing people pain, but they know that it's a uh, necessary component of the work that they do. The therapist sometimes has to say things they are going to cause pain, not because they want to, but because they see it as a necessary component of the work that they do. And they know if they do it well, if they do it right, if they do it good enough, that down the road there's something better. And so uh, I guess I just wanted to say that. So that's my recap. Um, thanks for walking with me while I gave it to you. Uh, sorry, I apologize for the weird audio that you got for this and for my, uh, my delivery. You might have noticed that sometimes it was like there was a weird edit, right? Like it would sound, you'd hear the noise and then it would be like kind of herky-jerky. It's because I made edits. There's a kid riding behind a big wheel. That's cool. I had a big wheel when I was a kid. Big wheels are, are awesome. That doesn't matter. Anyways, okay. Um, I'm going to stop talking now. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this thing. And I will see you all in class again soon. Take care. <laughs>